This episode is brought to you by Mountain Sea Media. I spend half my life near the Pacific Ocean and the other half in the mountains. These places are full of profound stories and experiences that guide my life even now as a media creator and beer professional. This is what gave birth to Mountain Sea Media, the stories that impact our lives and give meaning to our business. Stories share good experiences and the warmth of friends. They improve business by sharing these experiences and connecting deeply with our customers. If you'd like to connect better with your customers through copywriting and storytelling, contact me at jeremy at mountainseamedia.com. It's your story. I'll help you tell it. Welcome to episode 58 of Good Beer Matters. Uh, in Latin, there's just two words, ora et labora. So prayer and manual labor. You know, Benedictine monks, uh, particularly coming from Germany, all came with, with brewing traditions. And so beer is really looked on as a kind of food. Um, you could say liquid bread. There are men so devoted to their faith, they sequester themselves from the outside world. In order to sustain themselves and give to charity, they make a variety of products. Luckily for us, some of these products are the best beers in the world. Trappist beers as we know them have been around for close to 100 years. They have become a hallmark of quality, flavor, and especially good for pairing with food. Many secular breweries make their own versions called Abbey-style beers, but there is still an allure and a demand for tasting the real thing straight from the source. In recent years, the number of certified Trappist breweries nearly doubled, and with it, some new variations and old traditions. My next guest honors us with one of his very first podcast interviews to tell us about the inner workings and process of becoming America's first and only Trappist brewery. My name is Jeremy. I am a certified Cicerone, BJCP judge, IBD certified brewer, and a beer writer. I believe the art, the science, and the culture of beer has more of a profound effect on us than we realize. I believe there's a world of wisdom found in every glass, and I intend to get to the bottom of it. This is Good Beer Matters. These are the stories of us, of great food and the beer that brings it all together. I hope you enjoy episode 58 of Good Beer Matters with Spencer Abbey's Director of Brewing, Father Isaac Keeley. I have been looking forward to this conversation and this interview for years now. I have, I have wanted to explore uh, the world of monastic life uh, through faith, uh, particularly through the lens of beer. And then here you are today coming onto my podcast. I am so eternally grateful. Thank you so much for coming onto my podcast. Okay, Jeremy, you're very welcome. I appreciate the uh, the, the very warm welcome you're giving me. And uh, yeah, I think you kind of understand my bigger context. So uh, I'm looking forward to this conversation. Yes, and uh, for anyone who's listening, if uh, we are going to discuss religion in this uh, podcast, and so I, I want to make sure that anyone listening knows that ahead of, uh, ahead of time. But uh, Father Isaac, uh, uh, I want to make sure I, I have this straight. You are the Director of Brewing Operations at Spencer uh, uh, Brewery, the uh, Spencer Trappist Brewery, the first and currently only uh, Trappist Brewery in the United States. Does that, is that correct? Right, that's correct. Um, so, yeah, Spencer Brewery, we're at 
St. Joseph's Abbey in Spencer, Massachusetts. Uh, we are the only Trappist brewery outside of Europe, and so the only one uh, in the United States. And, uh, yeah, I'm the director. And so uh, will you, just to kind of kick things off, I, I always I always love to start at the beginning. It's always the best place to start is in the beginning. Um, you know, even the Bible started in the beginning. Um, yeah. uh, what is your uh, history in, in beer and brewing? Okay, so, you know, um, I always say I'm the last soldier standing. And <laughs> what I mean by that is... Uh, uh, you know, really the inspired idea for uh, our brewery project really came from another brother who uh, was interested in beer from the time he was in college. Uh, he always wanted us to brew beer, and we just kind of never were terribly interested. Um, and then around the year 2000 or so, uh, we started looking, our abbot really started looking ahead to um you know, the future for our monastery, for our community. At that time, we were around 60-some monks. But we could see we probably going to age and all that. And so, really, um, uh, we we needed to find another uh, revenue source. So, you know, monastic life, our version of monastic life called Trappist life or Cistercian life, uh, it's a contemplative form of monastic life, which means... Um, so life is oriented to prayer and meditation, and to balance that off, we do manual labor to support ourselves and some charitable outreach. So the, the thing that I didn't say, which I should say, is so unlike most religious organizations and Catholic religious organizations, um, we don't go out and do ministry, and although we do have a, a small retreat house, guest house, and we welcome people who want to live monastic life for a week or a weekend, um, that's not our main emphasis. Our main emphasis is really on the the search for God, the experience of God uh, for our community. Uh, people can participate in that if they wish, but because we're not doing ministry, we need to support ourselves. So we always produce an agricultural product for sale. And we could say that our traditional, traditionally we were dairy farmers for the last 60 years. We had done fruit processing. We have a company called Trappist Preserves. We do jams and jellies and those type of things. But uh, going forward, we need another revenue stream. And uh, my my brother said, let's do beer. And eventually, it took us 10 years of discussion and research. We finally said, okay, we'll do it. So um, I was always this brother's helper. Um, and then after we, we, the community took the decision to move ahead with the project for a variety of reasons, uh, he dropped out, and I suddenly became <laughs> the lead person. Um, so before this project, I really was not involved with beer, to put it really candidly. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a latecomer to the beer world. Well, and and please forgive my naivete to the monastic life. Like I mentioned to you uh, prior to us starting to record, uh, I'm faithful, but I'm not Catholic. So there's so much of of uh, of the monastic life that I don't understand, and and that's really one of the reasons why I wanted to have you come on is just to share that experience and how it uh, how it kind of pertains into uh, the world of beer, but. Um, but is is beer or alcohol allowed in the monastic life, uh, you know, when there is no brewery on site? Oh, okay. 
So, okay, before the brewery, before the brewery, we would have consumed alcohol maybe eight or ten times a year. So we'd always do it in the context of a, a, a feast day or festival meal. Um, and we do it at the main meal. But on, on big, big feast days like Christmas and Easter and Fourth uh, of July, et cetera, um, we would have we would have typically wine at the main meal, and um, we had some friends who had breweries who would donate some beer for, to have with our supper. So, um, yeah, consumption of alcohol in, the, in a moderate way, uh, in conjunction with uh, a meal, is, has always been really part of. Certainly, always a part of monastic life. Um, in the U.S., it's it's so certainly for you know for Europe. Um, in the U.S., uh, it does get it is complicated because you know we have that tradition of um, hmm, going back to kind of like the revival movements in the 19th century, where um, alcohol was really targeted as. Um, I, so today we'd say as a drug, and there was, you know, the uh, prohibition movements. Um, so the use of alcohol in religious communities got somewhat complicated by what happened just in the larger American culture. And in particular, um, you know, Benedictine monks, so monks that follow the rule of St. Benedict, uh, particularly coming from Germany, all came with, with brewing traditions. Um, but in the U.S., because of the um, negative press for alcoholic beverages, um, typically leadership of the American Catholic Church was uh, by Irish bishops, bishops with origins in Ireland. They shut down the Benedictines from brewing. So... Um, yeah, the role of alcohol became a little bit complicated because of the tendency towards prohibition in the larger culture. Um, certainly a lot of um, Protestant culture was somewhat officially hostile to the use of alcohol. But among Catholics, it always kind of had a place. Um, and for monks, especially uh, with meals. Um, mm, for myself, you know, I, this question comes up with some frequency. I always say, you know, in the Gospel of John, uh, Jesus' first miracle was uh, the wedding feast at Cana, and uh, they run out of wine, and so, you know, the first miracle is transforming vats of water into vats of wine. So, you know, if you go back to the origins, um, there isn't an intrinsic kind of contradiction to this. But culturally, you always have to deal with it. And, and you know, I, I always love... You know, reading the Bible or going to church and listening to stories, they always they always add so much more layer, uh, so many more layers of context to the things that Christ did um, as as the stories are told throughout the Bible, and and so it, it's hard to imagine that it's just a mere coincidence that um, when when Christ really began his work on Earth. Um, it, it, it's hard to believe it was just a mere coincidence that his, his mother came to him and said, Hey, uh, we're out of wine. Can you, can you help us out? Um, <laughs> and you know, that seems, that seems just too trite of a tiny detail. Uh, you know, you know, it could have been, uh, mass healings or mass feedings of the poor, or whatever to be a first miracle would have been, 
kind of an expected thing, but you know, helping everyone have a drink in celebration just seemed to kick things off really, really well in what in what his message was meant to be. Yeah, I think so. You know, um, we uh, we would always say that uh, you know God intends for human beings to be happy, um, and so you know, being able to celebrate, and in that case, you know, celebrate a wedding. Um, I mean, that's that's a really joyful occasion, and um, uh, wine, of course, was just such an intrinsic part of of um, you know Jewish culture that uh, it all kinds of fit, it all kind of fits. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I, I kind of want to circle back around to this topic, um, but I, I want to, I want to depart from this just for a moment. And we'll come back. Sure. Um, I want to talk about um, what it means to be a Trappist, and for those of us who operate in the world of beer, in the secular world of beer, we know Trappist means that really incredible, special beer from far off. Um, and it wasn't long ago that there were only seven uh, Trappist breweries in the world, and extremely well-known. And all of a sudden, uh, recently, now there are 13 with more coming on the way. Um, but I'm also aware that, you know, uh, uh, Trappist monasteries like Chimay will also make cheese. And, and I've, I've had uh, chocolate made with uh, olive oil from a, a monastery in Spain. And, and so I know that, um, that a lot of different products come from these Trappist monasteries. But what exactly does it mean to be Trappist? Okay, okay. All right. So, uh, okay, the short version is, okay... Um, monasticism in Europe really uh, is shaped by what's called the Rule of St. Benedict. So it's a 5th century document which attempts to interpret the Gospels in such a way that you could live them 24-7, 365 for a lifetime. Um, so this this document is like an interpretation of the Gospel to create a lifestyle of following Jesus that would be could be pursued for, uh, uh, you know, for a whole lifetime. So the monasteries that follow that rule are called Benedictines. Um, over the years, um, like any institution, uh, there's, there's a better way of following that rule, and there are, and there are different ways of reading it, and then there are, um, uh, then there are deviations from following the rule. So when you get to the to the um, uh, to the eleventh century, there's a major reform movement, um, and the reform movement uh, attempts to read the rule more literally once again, and it emphasizes uh, in Latin. There's just two words: ora et labora. So prayer um, and manual labor. Um, so that the monks in the eleventh century, there was a group. Uh, which are, are like our origin. They were, they were called Cistercians, which probably means Cistercium. The original monastery is probably near the three mile marker <laughs> in Burgundy. <laughs> um, and so, um, yeah, so that's, that's really our origin. So, and what's interesting about that is, um, you know, it was one of those movements which kind of, um, really caught fire. So in the first in the first hundred years they went from 
a single monastery to over 300 uh, throughout Europe. Um, and what's interesting about them is that the emphasis on manual labor, um, and so, for example, knights uh, would join the monastery, uh, they have to give up, you know, their privilege, um, and they would be in fields digging potatoes along with serfs who joined the monastery. So it was a really uh, socially transforming kind of movement. Um, so we fast forward from, uh, say, the 11th century to the 17th century. Um, there's a reform of that group of monasteries, which starts with a monastery called La Trappe. Um, and it's a time to go back to, to the roots, um, to reread the rule of St. Benedict, to get back to the manual labor, and to get back to a kind of ascetical life that would open one to a kind of mystical experience of God. So Trappists are, um, follow the rule of St. Monks that follow the rule of St. Benedict, monks and nuns that follow the rule of St. Benedict, um, but have this follow um, the pattern that was established at this monastery called La Trappe uh, in the in the mid 17th century, where we come from. Particularly, okay, so uh, so Spencer and and um, the monasteries in Belgium, um, not all, but most of us are are a result of uh, the French Revolution and the Napoleonic Wars. So. With the French Revolution, everybody got expelled from France. Um, uh, one group headed off to Switzerland at, uh, and, and settled at Valsant, uh, a monastery that they took over. But then when Napoleon went on the move to the east, um, they said, we got to stay ahead of Napoleon's army. So this group um, went all the way to Russia, actually, looking for a refuge place, and then realized, oh, Russia's going to blow up like the rest of Europe. So they headed back to they headed back to the west. Some settled uh, like uh, West West Westmala um, and uh, and a group I think associated with Akko also um, settled there in the Low Countries. Another small group, twenty five or so, came to North America, um, and Spencer is really from that group. Um, so we we are all de- descendants, if you will, will monastic descendants from uh, we trace our roots to the monastery of La Trappe, um, and typically, um, so we the so we, we're contemplative monasteries. So we we basically, you know, everybody talks about social distancing. So we kind of do that. That's our way of life: is to live in the enclosure of the monastery. Uh, to have this prayer uh, schedule that runs for us from like 3.30 in the morning until about 8 o'clock at night. And in between, we do um, we do a certain amount of manual labor, physical activity to balance off the more quieter contemplative activities um, and produce an agricultural product to support ourselves in charitable outreach. Um, yeah, so... Mm, I don't know. Does that does that give you a bit of an idea? Oh, absolutely. And and I uh, I wholeheartedly appreciate kind of the history that goes along with that as well. Um, um, but th- this is gonna that's a perfect lead into the next question. Is is you know there there are monasteries who brew beer that are not certified Trappist. Um, 
what what did you have to do in order to become a certified Trappist brewery and and join what was seven and is now thirteen in the world? Okay, okay. So, okay, so kind of the story on this, you know, the importance of certification as a Trappist brewery kind of goes like this. Um, you know, in Europe, there are there are the there are Trappist beers and there are Abbey beers. So, you know, and from a historical perspective, there were very many uh, monasteries that brewed beer and 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 eventually commercialized it and and sold it. Um, by the late nineteen uh, seventies. Only the Trappists were still operating their own breweries. Um, the other religious orders and monasteries, um, you know, had kind of modernized and moved on to other, uh, you know, their, and, and their focus really was on ministry, direct ministry, um, in service of, you know, of, of, the, of the people of the culture. And so what they did was they they typically either leased or sold um, in some way gave the provided the, the rights to produce their uh, traditional recipe to larger brewing operations. Um, so the Trappists were basically the only monks in Europe still running their own breweries, um, and you know. Non-Trappist commercial operations realized that while well, Trappist has some cachet uh, in the market, so um, they started calling themselves Trappists, um, and then the Trappists said, "Oh well, no, only a Trappist monastery can have a Trappist brewery and sell a Trappist product." Um, so they set out to kind of protect their the family name, if you will. So um, I think it was in 1985 that the Commercial Court of Brussels recognized that um, Trappist breweries and there were a distinct group producing a distinct product, and so they began to provide some what today we're going to call trademark protection for that. Um, uh, so, well, you know how it is in the commercial world. You know, it can be a little um, competitive. Um, so by, I think, I think it was, um, so, so first the Trappist formed this organization called the International Trappist Association. For short, we always say the ITA, so International Trappist Association. Um, they realized, well, we need to put some kind of symbol on the beer so people can really recognize, particularly Europeans can recognize what's really made in our monastery. So they created what's called the Authentic Trappist Product Logo, the ATP logo. So there's this little logo, like on Spencer beers, we have it on the neck label. Um, so it's a hexagonal structure um, which says Authentic Trappist Product. So that's where this kind of, uh, where all of this kind of comes from historically was to differentiate Trappist from other other uh, beers now basically produced by commercial breweries, but you know using recipes from that were originally from abbeys and monasteries. Okay, so now what do you have to do to be part of this? 
Um, the most basic thing is you, you have to have a Trappist brewery with a live Trappist community living there and working there. Um, then next, you have to build a brewery inside the enclosure of the monastery. Um, so in the part of the monastery that's reserved to the use of the monks because it's going to be a monastic workplace. Um, and then, let's see, what else do you need? Um, you Okay, so the size of the production needs to be proportionate to the um, financial needs of the monastic community and the charities it supports. Um, so, okay, so right, so you, you need a brewery inside the monastic enclosure. Oh, and the, and the brewery has to be under the direction of the monks. The monks don't have to do everything, um, but it has to clearly be uh, their business um, that they are really directing and ensuring that um, um, that the revenues are only used for those two purposes and that the commercialization of the products is done in a way that um, is consistent with kind of ethical position of, of Trappist monasteries as a group. Hmm. So, um, yeah, so... so uh, you know, kind of in a, in a kind of formal, technical way, you need those three things. So um, the community with the brewery inside the monastery, so to speak, uh, the, um, the financial picture there that the size of the production is proportionate to the needs of the monastery and its charities. And like a brewery like Chimay does a really extensive social work, so they have a much larger production. Well, and I was going to ask you about that specifically, where uh, uh, West Letron, uh, is, uh, I mean, their their beer is very scarce. You can only get it there at the cafe uh, next to the monastery, by my understanding, but Chimay is prolific. Um, I, can, you, can you speak to that a little bit more? Sure. So... Um... Chimay has a really interesting history. So, okay, so Chimay is a brewery associated with Scormont uh, Abbey. Um, and that region of Belgium um, historically has been a kind of economically uh, suppressed, even depressed region. Um, and, and particularly after World War II, um, there was, uh, you know, yeah, poverty was kind of the, the name of the game there. Um, and so, first the brewery itself and, and the fromagerie, the cheese operation, became major employers for the region. Um, <clears throat> but, you know, there's a limitation to how many employees you're going to have. Even if you're a large brewery, how many you, you, you are going to employ. And so, <clears throat> the monastery... Um, created a number of smaller um, artisanal and somewhat more than artisanal uh, enterprises, about 10 uh, in that region, to provide um, <clears throat> employment for a really large number of people. Um, I think a lot of those artisanal operations um, needed a certain amount of, um, how am I put it, uh, kind of ongoing support to make it really, uh, for it to work. 
Um, so that's how she may, uh, you know, has, has kept its charitable outreach proportionate to the size of, uh, of the, of the operation. And then in addition to that, um, she may and West Mala also, um, have been very significant, uh, players in the, in the Trappist order in terms of supporting monasteries in third world countries to get started and even to over really extended periods of time as they try to become as the third world monasteries try to become more self-supporting. So um, that's kind of where the, where the two larger uh, Trappist breweries have really made quite a significant impact. Mm. Well, and part of the name Trappist, again, I, I'm going to speak to the secular uh, beer world, uh, the, the, just the name Trappist, now the Appalachian uh, Trappist, really signifies a, a beer of a very high quality, um, a very unique, um, I can't even say Belgian style of beer anymore, but uh, just a very <laughs> wonder, wonder, wonderful beer that goes that is incredible to pair with uh, food um, and create experiences. Um, but, but we have a dichotomy, uh, especially now that you guys have started brewing, um, there's a dichotomy of just having just ages of tradition, which really goes back to the 20s in a, in a lot of sense. But um, but you know, of course, it goes back further, and you know that better than I do. Um, but there's so much tradition uh, in these breweries. But but here we are competing with innovation. How does the tradition and innovation um, stance play out in in a monastic brewing situation? Yeah, it's complex, Jeremy. Um, and it's and it's a really uh, live conversation inside the uh, ITA, the International Trappist Association. Um, so um, we meet four times a year. Three of those times are in, we meet in Brussels, and the and the other meeting, uh, the annual meeting, is uh, at at one of the Belgian monasteries, um, or or sometimes uh, at Koningshoven. Uh, which markets in Flatrap um, in in the Netherlands, um, and so you know we we've maintained for years that um, you know Trappist is an appellation, not not a style. So when you say you know it's not just the Belgian style, they're not just Belgian style beers. So you know technically you're absolutely correct, but but we do have a pretty active conversation uh, among ourselves about wow, you know. We've always said we, we wouldn't be identified by a style, but how comfortable are we with the range of styles that are being brewed, um, particularly in in the in the younger um, in the younger breweries? So Zundberg and Engelzell and Spencer, Trefontani, and now Tint Metal um, in Leicestershire, UK. Um, so you know that's that's. Um, that's a question that is is open and and ongoing, um, and 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 maybe I can just lay out some of the complexity to it. Um, you know the so we call them among ourselves now. You know the, the venerable Trappist breweries. So if we go Akoshime uh, or Val Rochefort, Westmala and West Lutheran, okay, um, and. And you know, Orval was was pretty creative with with their beer, although you know it's been around 
let's see, I think since the 20s. Um, so we don't think of that as an innovation, but, you know, uh, the Orval is at really, one point. <laughs> it's very distinctive from, from, from all the others. Um, so, but of course, you know, the conversation gets around to the point. Oh, yeah, but, you know, we were Belgian breweries and we, built, we brewed Belgian styles. And and the, those big beers, I, I learned, they get, this is really interesting, I think it's really interesting. A year ago, we had our annual meeting at West Mala. And as we were, we always do one more tour of the brewery uh, when, we're, when we're there for these meetings. And um, on the course of the tour, I learned um, that in the, I guess in in the in the uh, around the middle of the 1800s, um, Belgium Belgium had its own prohibition, but it was against spirits, high alcohol content spirits. Um, and the way ordinary people wanted to get around that, because you know prohibition is never universally accepted, so the way around it was to brew high-alcohol beers. Mm-hmm. Um, and as some of the Trappist breweries were coming online um, um, and, and moving into commercial sales, you know, they met that, that was opportunity. They met that need. Um, and that partly, maybe not exclusively, but that partly influenced the shape of the profile, the shape or the profile of those big, robust, delicious beers that we typically associate with Belgian Trappist beer. Um, so, you know, in the course of the discussion, we, we come to say, wow, those are really local beers. Um, so now today, if we have Trappist breweries um, in, in, in new geographical regions, Hmm, should they be clones of Belgian breweries or should they really brew local beers as well? Um, and so you can kind of see how this conversation starts. And when you kind of get to that point, you know, it's, it's a little hard to say, well, no, you can only brew these three styles or these four styles. Um, and so, hmm, and so, the yeah, the history goes on being written even uh, in the contemporary uh, culture. For well, Spencer, and, and, and I, go ahead. Well, let, let me interject something real quick before you talk about Spencer specifically. But um, you know, I, I've been reading up on the different uh, Trappist breweries recently, and uh, and and uh, and there was a website I found called Belgian Style Ales, and I'll put that in the show notes. But I I was able to not only get your beer, but I was able to get um, uh, beer from the uh, Trappist Monastery in Austria, as well as the one in Italy. Um, and, and in particular, I uh, I wanted to talk about. Uh, uh, Trey Fontaine in Italy, and they brewed a, a Belgian triple. You know, a, a kind of that. That's they're a monastic brewery. You know, the expectation is you brew a monastic uh, Belgian beer. So they did, except they added some eucalyptus to it, uh, which it was an absolutely phenomenal tasting beer, and I've never had anything like it. Um, and so to me, that was taking honoring the tradition but adding a little twist of innovation to it that was just spectacular right right 
Um, yeah, and of course, Trefa, one reason they did uh, eucalyptus is that they grow eucalyptus trees on their property. Mm. Um, so it was something that they, you know, it was, it was a product they were already producing. Um, and then they, you know, they, you know, they, they, there was this whole learning curve about, mm, how can we, how can we introduce this and still have, have it come out as a, as a, really set the triple profile, which they've got it down at this point for sure. That's right. All, I, I agree with that for sure. Yeah. But you were, you were about to uh, start speaking specifically about uh, Spencer and, and uh, how you guys are managing the tradition versus innovation. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So here's, here's the story is, is kind of like this. So since we were going to be the first Trampas brewery outside of Europe, uh, there was a kind of heightened concern about, you know, Spencer. <laughs> you know, Zinder. You know, Zinder uh, is is like the child of, uh, you could say, Konigshofen. Um, Engelzell was a little bit on its own, um, but you know, it's so tiny. Nobody was too concerned about it. But but now, what about Spencer over there in America? So. Um, so they wrote some extra rules for us, um, and one of them was originally they wanted us to brew uh, one beer for the first five years. Um, so you know we agreed to that. So and we and the way we got our dispenser Trappist Ale, you know when we talked it over in, in the U.S. there's an expectation we're going to do a really big, strong, complex, robust. Uh, probably a quad to launch with, but we said, you know, you you need to know more than than we know uh, to brew one of those beers really well. That doesn't seem like the right place for us to start. Um, a new Trappist brewery should really brew a beer that the monks of that monastery are going to drink and are going to like and going to be able to call their own. So, you know, the style, then we said, wow, we, should, we, we shouldn't be looking at the really big beers. We should be looking at a smaller beer, like a potter's beer, which in reality is where, is where every other Trappist brewery began, brewing a beer for their own use. The Brothers um, Beer, yeah. So, so that's where we started. Now, not everybody liked that. Because we're going to do it commercially, as well as use it for our monastery. We took the, the ABV up to 6.5. We're going to be absolutely true to a potter's style. We probably should have stayed around 4 to 4.5. Um, but um, at that point, we thought, well, probably, and the advice we had was to commercialize that you probably should come in around 6.5. So that's what we did. Um, and we did... Um, and our intention was just to brew that for the next five years. But what we found out was, um, you know, the American market doesn't actually, um, how would we put this? The American market was, was really, is, was moving on, you know, they're looking for, the market's looking for something, innovation. Um, so we realized that, wow, you know, even though, We'd like to just brew this for five years. As a matter of fact, um, 
if we're if we're going to have a chance at, at surviving uh, commercially, we're going to have to brew something else. Um, and so uh, that's when we began to uh, get the pilot uh, brew system going. We have a Sabco system, and we move it into the brewery, and we start working on pilot brews uh, week by week. Um, yeah, so our second beer was uh, the Holiday Ale. So, again, a, a really traditional Trappist style, um, uh, but a bigger beer. We thought, okay, yeah, we think we could. We're, we were, uh, what, two years into it. Um, and so we worked on that uh, for for mo- for the, the spring and summer of uh, 2015. And then... Uh, and then, oh, I didn't mention this earlier. So each new beer that a Trappist brewery produces that carries the authentic Trappist product logo, um, there's a process to get those beers approved. So uh, there's a, a planning and kind of paperwork process, um, recipe development reporting as being part of that. Um, label design and so forth. And then when you finally have it so you're ready to brew it and put it on the market, um, then you bring it to one of these uh, quarterly meetings of the International Trappist Association um, and you have to present it again, summarize uh, everything that went into it. And then there's a tasting um, and you get feedback on the tasting. And then there's a vote. Um, does it qualify? Is the quality such that it will we approve it to carry the authentic Trappist product logo? So, um, right. So we, we we have done that for each of our beers that uh, have the logo. Um, yeah. So that so there is a quality check, even though there are there's this kind of there's some innovation by way of style. Um, we're kind of finding our way with this, I think, as a, as an organization. Hmm, interesting. Um, uh, again, just for the sake of uh, being conscious of time and, and valuing your time, um, hmm. uh, you know, I, 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 so I've got you know the big question about uh, faith and alcohol that we started. I kind of want to go circle back around to that. Um, and with your blessing, I also have a few uh, listener questions um, before we kind of uh, do kind of like a final wind down uh, uh, series, so to speak. But the the big question I really want to know, I, 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 I've had many discussions about this, you know, reading through the Bible, I see um, particularly in the Old Testament of, uh, you know, discussions of of not not drinking or abstaining and um, and then the New Testament, of course, then, you know, we have the first miracle of water to wine and, uh, and a lot of it, uh, a lot of it, uh, talks about, uh, avoiding drunkenness, but it also, uh, and I forget the passage, but it says, um, whether, whatever you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it for the Lord or, you know, something uh, that's a horrible paraphrase, but, um, you, you probably know it by heart. When it comes down to the the question of faith and alcohol and the conflict that that uh, we have with that, what is your thought on the matter? 
Oh, okay, okay. So, okay, I'm going to come at it pretty much from the Trappist tradition, um, um, and I'll just uh, I'll just relate a story from uh, um, Brother Antoine, who now would be uh, wow, he's got to be in his late 80s. Um, and he worked in the brewery at Rochefort for his whole life, from the, from the time he entered the monastery until you know he he really became. Uh, Feeble isn't the right word, but, you know, we reached the point where he could no longer work on a daily basis in the brewery. So he spent his whole life in the brewery. So, you know, I, when, when I realized what his, what his life story was, um, I said, I have to talk to this man. Um, and, and we talked a little bit about this, and he said, you know, uh, the, Trappist, the Trappist diet until, like, the 1970s was, was pretty austere. Um, and he said, you know, we always, he said, we needed the beer, first of all, for calories. You know, we, we're, Trappists are, uh, we're non-meat eaters, so we're basically vegetarians. And in the low countries, up until the 1970s, uh, you know, there was, there was always soup and there was always bread and there was always cheese. Um, but, you know, it's a great climate for growing root vegetables. Um, and it was, you know, strong, uh, heavily a root vegetable driven diet. Um, so the beer was always just part of the meal. Um, and so beer is really looked on as a kind of food. Um, you could say liquid bread, um, that, uh, is provide up until at least the seventies was providing like essential calories in a pretty austere diet. Um, so, you know, for me, um, I, I thought, wow, you know, this is, this is kind of the key. It's, 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 um, big beer. Um, just, you know, when you think of the, the amount of malt it takes to produce them, um, yeah, it's a, it's really food meant to be meant to enhance other foods consumed with it, and meant to be consumed uh, in a in a really social context. Um, you know, in a Trappist monastery, we take our we take almost all of our meals in silence. With the main meal, there's always um, reading uh, that is it goes on during the meal. So a brother will read from uh, a, a book. Um, so there isn't a lot of conversation, but there is, but there no interpersonal conversation, but there's the conversation with the book, so to speak. So for me, um, and I, I would say certainly for, you know, European Trappist tradition, beer is just an integral part of, of the diet. Um, and there, and we, they, yeah, they, they just don't have this issue with it. That uh, we do have uh, in 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 certain sectors of uh, uh, the American religious population and population at large. Um, but for me, it's a kind of food meant to be. You know, in our bottles, we say pair with family and friends. Mm. Um, we think it's a kind of food that um, brings people together um, and helps can be used. Uh, to support conversation, which kind of grows the connective tissue of human relationship. Um, when you isolate it, 
um, when you want to consume it uh, simply for getting a buzz and so forth, then it can become a problem. Um, but if you keep it in the human context, um, it's it's a, it's another it's simply a, another kind of food um, that can enhance uh, a whole meal. Understood as both nourishment from the solid food, from the liquid food, and of course from the human interaction. I, I, to isolate it is is the problem, I think. Well, I, I, I always like to liken beer to a tool, uh, much like a baseball bat, where uh, a baseball bat can be a great tool for a little leaguer to hit his first home run, or it could be uh, for a hooligan to take out some mailboxes. It, it just it all depends on how you use it. Um, and, and to that to that end, uh, you know, I've spoken to a lot of people who think beer is a wonderful tool to take us to a different place, a different time, uh, particularly through flavor memories. Um, and it's also a, a great tool to mm. gather people around the table and, and, and really um, drive conversation. And, and when it's used for means of good, it's a wonderful thing. But can it be a tool for something greater, something higher? Or is that a little too cavalier to, uh, of an idea to place on beer? Um, I mean, I mean, I, I, my, my, my take would be that uh, the the kind of self transcendence that can occur in the conversation, where the where the beer is is one of the foods that are part of um, the encounter. Um, yeah, I would see the self transcendence you know, kind of thing coming primarily through the conversation and maybe through the silence afterwards. Um, but um, I wouldn't see it uh, kind of directly doing that. What about you? Um, I, I would, I definitely agree with what you have to say. I think it, um, <laughs> In my secular monasticism, uh, if there's such a thing, I, I find the introspection that that um, that I experience when I'm thinking about the flavors, when I think, most importantly, I'm thinking about the stories behind the flavors. And I'm thinking about uh, when I, I tasted your Pilsner and your Holiday Ale, and I've got the... Um, uh, the, the Trappist Ale left to, left to enjoy, but I think about... You know the flavors that that uh, that you all brewed um, into the beer, and and the culture, the lifestyle that goes behind those those flavors, and it takes it takes a moment of uh, pensiveness and and uh, introspection to 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 really take it to a different level. And I think it may not be the beer that that takes me to that level, but just the time spent. Thinking about it, contemplating it, helps me get to something bigger and better, which is really why I go through the trouble of having a beer podcast and everything else that I do. I think there's so much more behind the beer, but like that baseball bat, it's just a tool. The rest of the work is on you, the drinker. Yeah, yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I'm with that. You know, the Belgians have a phrase which 
nobody's ever happy with the way it gets translated. But the, the, the core idea is that beer that's really brewed um, with intelligence and skill um, must be consumed with, uh, sometimes I just say wisely or, or with wisdom and perspective. Uh, meaning, um, good beer is, is really meant to be, uh, obviously the flavor and all that to be savored, but to kind of just let yourself remember, wow, where did it come from? What went into it? Um, and, and as you're saying, you know, what's, what, what are the stories that, that all converge to, to provide this beverage? Um, from, from, you know, the farmer, uh, you know, to the malter, to the brewer, uh, all the way to your table, you know. Um, and, and, you know, to go even back further, like just into to the creation, you know, to, to the, to the, to the evolution of the, of, of the grains that are suitable to produce these kinds of beverages. And not to, you know, we don't want to lose track of the microorganism, you know, the yeast, mm-hmm. um, which is so essential to, oh, yeah, that's something we never got to today. Another time. The <laughs> yeast is so essential to, um, you know, Trampas, certainly classic Trampas brews. Yeah, I, um, I think the drinker has to be willing to go to a certain level or open to going to a certain level. But for me, the beer will certainly take you there if if allowed yeah, yeah, that's a, that, Jeremy. That's a really nice way to put it. Hmm, thank you. Um, yeah, the beer will take you there. I like that. I'm going to remember that. Well, I, that's all yours. Um, uh, is it okay if I ask you some? Uh, I have four listener questions that I, that uh, that I that I got to ask when I when I mentioned that I had a. Uh, fairly rare opportunity to talk uh, to a Trappist brewer about Trappist beer. Um, I, I got a few of these coming back. Um, one is, from, sure. and, and these all came from Instagram. So one is R. Storton. Uh, and yes, there is a relation. Um, he's my brother, but uh, he's also a, a man of faith and a, and a man of beer like myself. Um, his question was, what drives your commitment to the monasteries? And is it the same commitment to making very good beer? Oh, okay. What drives my commitment to the monastery? Oh, okay. I mean, what drives my commitment to the monastery? I, you know, the simple way would be say that this is, uh, uh, you know, the experience of God. Um, I, I, here, here, I can, here's a way to say it, so it makes it more accessible. I think um, the Irish have this thing where they talk about thin places. A thin place is uh, is a place. Uh, you, you can't create a, you can't make a thin place by human hands, but it's a place where the boundary between heaven and earth or eternity in time is really thin. And on my first, first visit to the monastery, yeah, that's right. A friend brought me here. I never would have found this monastery. <laughs> a friend brought me here and, and I experienced it as a thin place that, you know, today I would say, Really, the Spirit of God just touched me uh, in a way that had never happened to me before, and I, and I was like, "Wow, what is that? I got to figure this." <laughs> Today I left. I have to figure this out. I need to get to the bottom of this. Well, you know, now it's forty years later. You don't get to the bottom of it, and you don't figure it out. But you can say, "Wow, the Spirit of God touched me," and in a way that I didn't even know could happen. 
So that's what, and I've, I've never got over it. That's what, so I, that'd be my answer. That's what drives it, so to speak. That's what animates my uh, monastic life. Um, for the brewery, you know, uh, okay, here's, here's what really animates me for the brewery. Um, the monastery, the whole thing, you know, the land, the buildings, the, 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 the monks and the way of life. So that whole ensemble, it's a thin place. We're the caretakers. Mm. So my commitment to the brewery is that um, uh, this allows us to to continue this this place uh, in its integrity to make it available for the present generation and the next generation, and I hope there's going to be generations after me that keep doing the same thing. Yeah, and I would also have to say this, you know, there's uh, brewing beer. There is a whole contemplative side to the brew process. It fits with the way of life. doesn't always fit the schedule nicely, but the process fits with monastic living. And I love your description of thin places, uh, and that really harkens back to what you and I were talking about a moment ago. I, I like your description better. Um, I, you know, my, my own, uh, first thin place was not a monastery. I'm uh, married with children and it took a different route, but my, my first experience, my first thin place was ironically, it was body surfing. Um, just had a, a full on experience with God while body surfing. And it, it's kind of funny to say that out loud, but it, it you know, wow, he, he, nice. he, he works in mysterious ways. Right. Um, yeah, but, yeah, yeah. I get that. But I, but, uh, but you know, it, Per our conversation prior to this, I think beer has the ability to, uh, for those who are willing, it it unlocks doors to that thin place more often than other things. Um, and I, I I really appreciate your description of that. Okay, Jeremy, thank you. Um, uh, another question, and and if if you're running out of time, uh, let me know. But I, I'm starting to wind down now. Um, another question, a little, little bit more on the practical side from Rio Likes Beer. Uh, what do you wear while you're brewing? Ah, okay, okay. So, um, so when we are really doing manual labor, we put on regular work clothes, typically jeans and a t-shirt. Oh, perfect. So th- there are pictures out there of, uh, of of monks wearing robes and please forgive me i don't know the vernacular for that uh and that just seems a, a bit cumbersome especially when you're dealing with uh a, a clean in place chemicals and hot liquids and it seems like it would be uh less than desirable so that that's good to know yeah yeah yeah. some of that is photo op stuff yeah i um <laughs> and 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 for me as a director um so most of my work now is 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 office kind of work or office. I work out of an office. It's pers- I'm all over the place. But I'm, I'm not primarily responsible for brewing. Others are re- primarily responsible for brewing. So, and when, when you know, we're not open to, a pub, to the public, but inevitably people show up at the door. Um, so I'm the one who looks like a monk, even though you can't tell the others are monks. We have both monks and non-monks working in the brewery. Okay. Um, so uh, you can't tell one from another just by the way they're dressed. Gotcha. Um, but I'm, I'm there as little bit as the icon. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Um, and uh, another question from David Nilsson Beer. Um, do you enjoy your own beers, and how does beer fit into your monastic life? Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, okay. Yeah, so the brothers, you know, they, they, we, we, we started out before the brewery. Most brothers would have said they were wine drinkers, you know, when it was 10 to 12 times a year that we would serve alcohol at a meal. So the first beer, the whole design, the design challenge was to create a beer that we can kind of, that'll be incredibly accessible and you can kind of embrace these people who would say, these brothers who would say, hey, we're really not beer drinkers and to win them over. (laughs) (laughs) So, okay, so that was the, that was, you know, that was the, the, the challenge on that first beer. Um, and I was, I, I can remember there's a brother who before we did this said, oh, I hate the smell of beer. <laughs> and the night we served it for the first time, I saw him go for a second. I said, oh my God, brought tears to my eyes. I said, I think we've made it. Um, okay, so, but going forward, so as we've introduced new beers, um, yeah, the brothers, you know, they have their favorites. We, we serve the beer every Sunday night at supper. Um, so that's when, in our monastery, when we, when, you know, when we, when we have it with a, with a meal on a weekly basis. And depending on what we're brewing and, 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 and what's finished or what's new, um, we bring it over and we set it up, we introduce it, and they find their, they find their way. What's interesting to me is there's a whole crowd of brothers who love the holiday ale. Um, um, and it's real. I would say some of the hardest core wine drinkers, if I could call them that, they wouldn't like me calling them that. But, those but, those but, must um, be the ones with the great palate, because that is a complex and very interesting beer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and it's like, yeah. So that's that's. I, I we almost. I, I, I get in trouble if I don't. If there aren't some holiday cheers, <laughs> holiday beer uh, offerings on Sunday night. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, so so that's kind of Sunday night or major feast day. Um, tomorrow's feast of John the Baptist, who's really big in our tradition. So we'll have beer tomorrow night in mm. honor of John the Baptist. Um, last listener question for you uh, from Al the Brewer. Uh, how many brothers work in the brewery, and what was their brewing training? Ah, okay, okay. So for brew training, we had two brothers that... Um, we had to have the trained in Belgium, so we had two brothers who um, we had to have. Okay, here was the rule. One of the new rules for us by the ITA was we had to have uh, French. They call it Paranage. So we had to have a sponsor. Um, so Chimay Brewery was our sponsor, and so two brothers uh, lived and worked at Chimay Brewery for uh, over six months, um, and then. Our, our our ongoing training is this: our, our, our business plan is to always have a brew engineer on staff who's not a monk. So the senior technical person is a non-monk, and part of his job is the ongoing training and education of the monks as we grow a beer culture in our monastery. Um, so okay, now I do happen to have a brother who is a, a, a PhD biochemist. So what he needs for training is quite different from what someone else needs for training. Mm-hmm. So, um, so uh, yeah, so, it's real, so for us, the real key to the training 
is 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 the brewer engineer, and that's just kind of ongoing. Um, so for on, a, on an everyday basis, um, we have we have three brothers who are working in the in the in the brewery. Um, I have two, my brew engineer, and one other um, man, young man, who's really interested in brewing, who work in the in the brewery. Um, and then on packaging days, I have another four brothers who come over and and help. Um, and then sometimes we have when we have special projects, um, I get I can get a whole crew of about twelve monks to come and help us with. Um, um, some really special packaging projects. Mm. Um, yeah, so a brewery is set up to kind of run pretty efficiently. That was kind of our uh, our idea, is to um, have a small, be able to operate it with a relatively small staff. Um, I would add that we are in the process of, of integrating um, more brothers into the operation as as the business grows. It's just like any other business. Um there's all kinds of things you have to do to <laughs> to, to 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 run the business, you know, with the with the with the marketing, the sales support, and all that kind of thing. Yeah, of course. Um, so the, I, I'm going to start uh, uh, winding down to the final questions, and these can be uh, uh, very brief or as as long as you have time for. Um, but uh, if you could be the beer king, or I guess in your case, the beer abbot for of the entire world for a day, what would you change? If I could be the beer king for the entire world for a day? Yes. What would I change? Um, wow. I would, you know, for people who really want to... Um, Brew and make a living brewing. Um, I, do, I wish we could make it make it so that people could really, you know, live out their their beer dream. Um, so they could really live it out and make it uh, financially and all that um, without you know having to to, to you know go to some of the extremes to which people have to go to, especially right now in the current environment. Um, yeah, I just wish that, the, 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 you know, we could make the, uh, the, the, the beer uh, business world incredibly beer producer and beer consumer friendly, increase the friendliness of the whole thing. Um, yeah, because, you know, people have such wonderful dreams about what they want to do with you know, with their brewery and with their brewing and, you know, and, but making it work is really, really challenging. And, and you know, I say that as, as somebody who is also challenged. Hmm. Um, but, uh, yeah, that's what I would like to see that for it all to become, uh, easier, easier or, or I guess I want to say, uh, more readily feasible, but I don't think that's a realistic dream to be honest in, in, in our current world. But I'd like it to be that way. I, I I think there's a lot of people that feel the same way. It would be nice if we could go back to, uh, you know, brew some good beer uh, for a for your local community and and just really uh, thrive by through local collaboration. I think it would be a, a dream we all have. Uh, yeah, that's a nice way to put it, Jeremy. Thank you. 
Um, it, uh, Father Isaac, if you had the opportunity to choose your very last meal and your very last beer before you depart the earth, what would they be? <laughs> okay, so for my uh, for the meal, I want to have a Spencer Travis ale, um, and but I want to have a dessert beer, and probably and for the dessert beer, I yeah, I probably want to have the quad. Mm. Um, okay, and you know, have that really be kind of long and slow. And to tell you the truth, um, I'd be really happy. Oh, I really want a uh, you know um, a Boston lettuce salad, um, bib salad, and um, wow, what do I want to eat? You know, you know, I could be really happy with a little piece of salmon, or um, yeah, that would do it for me. You know, the salad, the salmon. The beer. I want some nice bread. Mm. Oh, okay. And I, and 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 I and I want I want a cheese course. You know, kind of put to go with that dessert beer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That 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 sounds like a dream. I I think a Belgian quad would probably be my my last beer as well. I'd, I'd probably have a series of beers knowing me, uh, but it probably, until I, well, your Belgian quad was not available when I ordered it. Um, uh, so I, I'll have to uh, keep my eyes out, but I, it'll probably be something on the lines of, uh, of, Oh gosh, like a St. Bernardus Abbot 12, which is not a Trappist beer, but uh, you know, it, no, it, it's, no, but it's a great beer. It's, it's, it's a beer a, that converted me to beer. It, it's, it's a beer that, uh, you know, when the rest of us can't find find West Legend Twelve, then we've got Abbott Twelve there ready for us to kind of tide tide us yeah. over until we can get it. Um, in your wonderful in your in just your life experience, particularly with beer, uh, how do you answer the next question? Why does good beer matter? Um. Well, you know, it's food. And you're going to bring it into your body. Um, and, you know, the human person is this sacred creature uh, created by God, but also sanctified by the way we, we, we live and love one another. So, you know, you only want to really consume what's, what's really good or even, in a certain sense, what's best. Um, and I guess the other, so, you know, good beer, you, you, you only want to consume good beer. Who, who, who has time for bad beer? Um, um, or who has resources for bad beer? And, and the other thing is this, you know, your, your beer consumption, you know, depending on your sensitivity to alcohol and the alcohol content of the beer, um, you know, it's got to be limited if you're going to really function, um, you know, at your, at your optimal capacities. So, you know, you have to choose what you're going to consume that has alcohol in it. So why drink anything less than what, what you find to be really good, even the best? Wonderful. And if anyone listening to this podcast episode wants to learn more about uh, uh, the beer that you are brewing, um, about uh, about uh, Spencer uh, Abbey, um, I, I'm sorry, I think I... I, think I called it by its wrong name but that's no that's all right spencer okay. abbey works with spencer abbey dot org is the abbey website okay and yeah. and so uh are people 
able or allowed to visit the brewery or the monastery, or are there certain rules? Oh, of course there are rules. <laughs> but, okay. um, that was a loaded yeah, question. So, I'm sorry you about can that. Visit, you, can, you can visit the monastery. You know, right now we're still under this COVID thing. Um, but um, so, one, the, the best place to get all that information is, is, the, is the Abbey website, uh, www.spencerabbey.org. Um, if you want to, once we get reopened, if you want to live like a monk for a week or a weekend, you go to our guest house. You can make online reservations. All the information you need to know about that is there. Uh, right now, our little shop at the entrance to the monastery down on Route 31 is still closed, but that will reopen. So um, you can buy, you can't buy the beer there yet because of licensing issues. But um, you can buy all kinds of other monastic foods and items there and get a sense of what the monastery is about. There's about a mile-long road you can walk from the gift shop up to the Abbey Church. Again, once we reopen, the church is open from 3 in the morning until 8 in the evening. You're always welcome to listen in to our services. We meet in the church seven times a day for chant. Uh, you're always welcome to to listen in, pray along with us. Um Okay, for the for the monastery because for the brewery because it's in a part of the monastery that's a monastic workplace, not open to the public except for one day a year we have an open house. This year, of course, it got canceled. Um, typically, last year we had you know over seven thousand visitors on that day. It's really kind of a real festival kind of event. Um, we are hoping to be able to sell the beer at the gift shop before. Maybe within two or three months, we're working on licensing for that. Um, I think that got it covered. Absolutely. Um, it, and then it, for the brewery, for information on the brewery, go to uh, spencerbrewery.com. There's a website. There's a Facebook page. There's the Instagram page. We'd encourage you to do – I'm not – do uh, – I, I can't – I don't know how to do all this, like postings and links and all those kinds of things. Grow our, grow our, follow us. That's the key. Yes. Grow our following. Does it help? Well, I I will do my part. Um, and the final question I have for you is: Do you have any final words of wisdom? Um, uh, seek peace and pursue it. Whether you're brewing or you're 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 uh, buying good beer, you can sharing good beer with one another. Working, um, yeah, yeah. Grow, you know, seek peace and pursue it so that, you know, you only have one heart. So you really want it to be a place of peace and to uh, help others experience peace by experiencing you. How's that? That's my, that's, that's my, without, that's my, I want to put it, that's my religious uh, word without using explicitly religious language. Gotcha. Um, <laughs> Father Isaac, thank you so much for coming on this podcast. This was an absolute delight, an absolute blessing. Um, uh, th- thank you, and, and, and I, I, I pray for peace to you as well. Okay, okay, Jeremy, thank you so much. It was a wonderful invitation. Um, yeah, I love your questions and, and your comments and your sharing. Uh, I, I, I hope this is, is good for uh, the people who participate in your podcast. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye now. Religion and alcohol are often at odds with each other. Although the Bible warns against drunkenness, Christ's first miracle was turning water into wine for the sake of a wedding celebration. 
Thank you to Father Isaac of Spencer Abbey for reminding us that good beer is a tool that provides many blessings. Join us in the next episode where we discuss the psychology of food and drink with the man who wrote the book on it. Good Beer Matters is a show about great beer, great friends, and the experiences we create together. But it's also about better appreciation of the beer you enjoy. I believe better education leads to better enjoyment. So if you're a beer and food professional or even a beer enthusiast, then please subscribe to Good Beer Matters and visit me at goodbeermatters.net. After that, grab a beer, hang out with friends, and let the world open up. Thank you for listening. Cheers. Cheers.